Today, we continue our series, Good News. Matt opened us up last week talking about plans and palms. I pray that you were blessed by that. But today, I want to talk to you under this title, Life After Death. The topic for today is that the good news is that there's life after death. Our minds, our human minds could try to fathom how life can exist after death. It almost doesn't make sense. But this is the beauty of what we're celebrating today. The fact that in Christ, there is life after death. And this is good news. Can you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 4? If you don't have your Bibles... Would you just check in the chat here and join me as I proceed in the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk into newness of life. If you have your Bible open or if you have your pad open and you're taking notes, would you just write with me newness of life? In 1891, a famous theologian in all of Christian history named Charles Spurgeon shared a sermon at Metropolitan Tabernacle that I want to read a portion of to you. And I pray that it blesses you. He says, The idea that the grace of God should lead us to licentiousness, and licentiousness means permission to sin, permission for the immoral. The idea that the grace of God should lead us to licentiousness is utterly loathsome to every Christian man. We cannot endure it. The notion that the doctrines of grace give license to sin comes from the devil. And we scout it with a detestation for deep, more deep than words can express. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? And if you look up a picture, actually, of Charles Spurgeon, I kind of look like him. And and don't do that now. Let me finish this. But I, I look a little bit like him. And so he continues saying, on our first entrance upon a Christian profession, we are met by the ordinance of baptism, which teaches the necessity of purification. Baptism is, in its very form, a washing, and its teaching requires cleansing of the most thorough kind. It is a burial in which the man is viewed as dead with Christ to sin, and is regarded as rising again as a new man. And of course, this covers man and woman for those wanting to be exempt from this. It covers women as well. Baptism sets forth as in a submitting to that sacred ordinance. We declare that we believe ourselves to be dead with him because of his ordinance of the death penalty and dead to the world and to the dominion of sin by his spirit. At the same time, we also profess our faith in our Lord's resurrection and that we ourselves are raised up in union with him and have come forth through faith into, again, newness of life. It is very impressive 
It is a very impressive and vivid symbol, but it is without meaning unless we rise to purity of life. Let me read that to you again. It is a very impressive and vivid symbol, but it is without meaning unless we rise to purity of life. The basis of this confession lies in the union of every believer with Jesus Christ. We are dead with him because we are one with him. Listen to this. We're dead with him because we're one with him. We are risen with him because we are one with him. Every believer is, in the purpose of divine grace, identified with Jesus. He was given to the Lord Jesus from the foundation of the world and placed under his covenant headship. The Lord Jesus suffered for the believer as his substitute, and virtually each saved one died in Christ who represented him. The believer rose in Christ by virtue of the eternal union which exists between the saint and his savior. Therefore, the believer continues to live, for the Lord has said, because I live, ye shall live also. Our destiny is identified with that of our covenant head. His life is the model of our experience. He makes us the conformed to be conformed to his image now, and we shall be like him when we shall see him as he is. Let me read that portion again. We shall be like him when we see him as he is. Oh, my hearer, if you are not in Christ, you have nothing. Out of Christ, you are in the wilderness. With him, you are in paradise. In Christ, believers possess all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and grace and power and love. All things are yours if you are Christ's. Look at that condition, that word, if you are Christ's. From our union to Christ follows our sanctification. We cannot follow after sin, for Christ does not follow after it. He died unto sin once, and we are henceforth dead to it. He is risen by the glory of the Father, and we are risen with him into righteousness and acceptance and joy. Probably one of the longest quotes you'll ever hear me read, but there is no need for me to recreate the wheel when tremendous men of God have poised these amazing words for us to understand the importance of being Christ's. You know, I like asking questions when I share Sunday messages. And so my first question to you today is, do you belong to Christ? Today, across the world, churches are at capacity, COVID capacity, and abundance online from the comfort of our homes and our beds and our couches and around our families and around the kitchen table. Everyone is engaging, wearing their Sunday best. Our presence, however, means nothing if we, in our hearts, don't belong to Christ. If this is your first time on with us, I guarantee you I don't speak this stern every Sunday, but I do speak with this much assurance with every time I speak about the Lord. We all should belong to Christ. 
I celebrate the Father that you would decide to be with us on this Sunday on Facebook and on Zoom. My prayer, though, is that the one thing you take away today, if you take nothing else with you, is that it's more than just joining us. It's more than just fellowship. We must belong to Christ. And just as he died and rose again, we should die and be risen again with him. You may also ask yourself why I read this to you, this long excerpt of which you understood one out of every 15 words, perhaps, from a man who preached in the 1800s. Isaac, why? Why not just share your own message? I share this message with you because I need this church, our church, God's church, the gathering, to understand that scripture and the gospel are not meant to relate to the times. As a pastor living in these times, we're finding that so many people are just confused about the importance of Scripture. I share with you a sermon in the 1800s so that you understand that the Bible doesn't change to the time. It is not the intention of the gospel to change with tides and trends. In a world that is so constantly changing sensitivities and opinions, we preach a gospel that does not move and does not bend. Say what you will about your own preferences, but the word of God is not a book of recommendations. It's not a book of Dr. Sue's bedtime stories. They are instructions from a master. They're directions from a father, lessons from a teacher. If we don't believe in the word of God and we doubt the resurrection of Jesus, we have no foundation for our faith. Do you doubt that Jesus actually rose from the grave? Jesus' death was payment for our sins, but resurrection would become his standard. What we're celebrating today is not that we cleared our debts. It's that we cleared our debts. It's that we were cleared of debts that could only be paid with death. And the one who covered that payment also holds the power to conquer death from within death. No one else in all of human history and all of mankind has been able to defeat death from within death without assistance. We live in an age of science where somebody's heart can stop and because of science be brought back to life. Jesus had no help. Jesus conquered death from within death. A spear went into his side and pierced his heart to make sure that he was dead. And somehow he still beat death. I love our neighbors of other faiths. I can't wait to share a table with them, invite them into my home, have a cup of coffee with them, go back and forth in a loving manner about our faiths. But the truth is, who you serve, who you show your loyalties to, is dead. My savior is not. I need no other proof. You need no other proof. There isn't a single religion in all this world that has claimed to any type of truth 
that would deny that Jesus existed because Jesus was historical. It's to say that continents in our earth, on this world, don't exist. It's negating a fact. But if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then show me where he died. And show me where he's buried. And show me that he's no longer with us. And I do want to just kind of take a step to the side and say, if you're somebody who, who is figuring out faiths, you know, I want you to take my assurance as something encouraging. I don't want you to take it as, well, man, he's just full of himself in the way he speaks. Well, listen, the truth is I serve a living king. Today on Easter Sunday, we're celebrating a man who died as man but a king who was resurrected as God. It became Jesus's standard because anyone can die, but not all can live again. We all have the talent of finding death. Does anybody not have the talent of finding death? Each and every one of us who's watching this and including myself who's speaking this, all of us have an incredible talent of finding the wrong things to do. Anybody? Anybody know how to find trouble? 100% of us, if we wanted to find trouble, we would find it. You might be on your phone texting somebody right now that you shouldn't be, as I'm sharing this message, finding trouble, finding death. We all have the talent of finding death, but only those who have accepted Christ also share in the ability to live again. See, that's the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that simply being, remaining, and believing in Christ leads us to resurrection with him. No other faith can say that what they believe in can bring them to eternal life and life after death. There are some beliefs, there are some faith systems who believe in a second regeneration or that they'll come back as an animal or come back as a prince or a king. We're not talking about that. We're talking about life forever after death in paradise with the creator of the universe. We're not talking about coming back to this same body, to this same earth, to this same brokenness. We're talking about success in paradise with the Almighty. After paying our dues in the flesh, if you will. John chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die, yet shall he live. There's a hope that a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ has when it comes to death. And although in the natural we might fear dying, when we are assured in Christ, we know that this isn't the end. If anything, the pains of life in this world will no longer be with us. Instead, we'll have the glory of heaven, of paradise with the Father in his due time. 
First Thessalonians chapter four, verse four, verse 14. And I love what Thessalonians says here. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And I'm not talking about those who have dozed off. This refers to those who have died. And it uses the word asleep because they died in Christ. So now they're just in a state of repose for when he's ready to bring them back. In order to live again, we must believe that Jesus did the same. Must believe that Jesus did the same. In John chapter 20, we read the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. We see that Mary Magdalene saw an open and empty tomb. And the first thing that she saw, the first thing that she thought, excuse me, was that someone had stolen Jesus's body. And this made sense because Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, a man named Nicodemus, asked to bury Jesus out of fear that the Jewish leaders would do something to his body. The Jewish leaders of the temple at this time were afraid of Jesus. The reason why they asked that the spear be pierced into Jesus' side to make sure that he was dead was because they were afraid. There was something inside of them that was telling them, this is the king. And so when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus see that Jesus has died, they ask Pilate for permission to take him off the cross and run him into this grave before somebody took his body. So we do know that it was a possibility that there were those who wanted to steal Jesus's body. But this is immediately what Mary Magdalene chose to believe. When Mary Magdalene saw this emptied tomb, she ran over to Peter and the disciple that they referred to as the beloved, which in my opinion is the, the apostle John and Peter and John ran to the tomb and they see that Jesus is no longer there. But their approach to what happened wasn't that someone had stolen Jesus's body. What they saw was the fulfillment of prophecy. So you have two people. You have Mary Magdalene who Jesus loved so much and ultimately would show himself to her so that she would believe. But then you have Peter and potentially John, the beloved, who go to the tomb and immediately say, it was true. It was true. What the prophet Hosea in chapter six, verse one said is true. And let's read what the prophet had said. And we're talking about Hosea prophesying this hundreds of years before Jesus. Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Hundreds of years before Jesus would actually come to deliver us, Hosea was already prophesying. We, you and I, are able to receive new life by just believing in the resurrection of Jesus, accepting that he is unlike any other in any other religion. He is the living king, and we are able to live because he died 
and rose. It's insufficient to say that Jesus died. The sufficiency of this glorious event is the resurrection. For us to live again, we must also die. This death, however, our death is different than Jesus's. Our death isn't payment. It isn't atoning. We aren't saving ourselves and we're not saving anybody else. But it is committing. Our death is to ourselves. Abandoning all selfish ambition, leaving behind the things of our past, dying to our flesh to seek after what Jesus wants for us. This is the separation between a follower and a believer. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, which is my favorite verse for when we have people go into the waters for baptism. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is the qualifier for being a true follower of Jesus and not just a believer. A qualifying characteristic for being a disciple of Jesus himself. Picking him even over yourself and constantly looking at the things above where Christ is. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 is an invitation for you not to be distracted. If you focus on the things above where Christ is, you are unbothered by the things that are bothering you to your left and to your right. How hard is that in a culture where you constantly are being reminded of how great you are and how pointless faith is? This is the distraction that the devil uses. I was reading the news the other day. I was just on Yahoo. It wasn't Christian news. And it said that currently, through studies that they've been doing and researchers have been looking into, for the first time in recent history, 50% of those who used to call themselves Christians are no longer identifying as Christians. 50%. And the only thing that I could think about was this is the great falling away. Only God knows that. But I wouldn't be surprised if God made this the time where the great falling away happened. People losing their faith. Why? Because we can't gather? Why? Because we're not in person? Because nobody sent you a reminder to log into online church? This is how easily we lose our faith. Remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Those images that you just saw in the video right before I started, remember those images. This isn't a joke. Jesus, as a man, surrendered his life because he thought you were worth it, not because you thought you were worth it. So as we're surrounded in these cultures of wanting to make us feel like we are amazing and we're this and we're that and everything you need is within you. No, no, everything that we need is within Christ. But because I am unified with him, I both die and am raised up 
with him, but only because of the Lord. If we're great, it's because he's great. If we're worth it, it's because he is worth it. But the difference is us being unified with Christ. The proof that I have for how good we are not is what we celebrate today. That the greatest rescue story of all time had to happen at the cross on Calvary, where Jesus had to die and be resurrected for you and I to have a chance at life after death. 